This is Ron Stockton. I just ran across an article I published in 2002. It was in the University Record, the official newspaper of the University of Michigan. I called it Thoughts of a Former Terrorist. It was provoked by an explosion of verbal assaults on those who suggested that the university should symbolically distance itself from the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian lands by selling off shares of companies that invested in Israel. At the time, Lawrence Summers, a strong supporter of Israel and someone well known for his inflammatory words, was the president of Harvard University. Well, enough for context. Here is what I wrote back in 2002, with some commentary and elaboration along the way. It still seems timely. <clears throat> it has been an interesting few months for those of us who teach about the Middle East. First came the well-publicized speech by Harvard President Lawrence Summers about people whose views are anti-Semitic in their effect, if not their intent, whatever that means. He mentioned specifically those who want universities to divest from companies operating in Israel and student organizations that raise money for groups later found to support terrorism, whatever that means. He said it was less alarmist than a year ago to fear a coming Kristallnacht. Now, for those who don't remember, Kristallnacht was a violent Nazi assault in 1938 on Jewish communities across Germany. There was much destruction of property and many fatalities. It was the beginning of the end for Jews in Germany. Summers was apparently suggesting that massacres of Jews orchestrated by the American government was a definite possibility. Then there was a website to watch, quote unquote, named professors, and to solicit reports about them from students. One of those vigilantes signed up for my class on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict until I kicked him out. Finally, there was a letter in the Chronicle of Higher Education using the word anti-Semite to describe one of our colleagues who favors a university boycott of Israeli investments. Um, as a faculty ombudsman, at the time, charged with protecting the rights of faculty to speak freely, I was concerned about these attacks, to say the least, and about the loose, inflammatory, irresponsible use of the word anti-Semite. Reflecting upon the fact that honorable people suggesting nonviolent resistance to an occupation were being described in the harshest ad hominem terms, I couldn't help but think back to my days as a terrorist, by definition. It was in the early 1980s when I spent part of my sabbatical in South Africa, a beautiful but troubled land still under the white apartheid regime. I mostly interviewed professors and government officials, but even in a place where the opposition was in exile or under arrest, it was common to encounter opponents of the regime. One revealing conversation was with a civil rights attorney whose client was in prison for organizing a neighborhood protest. The issue was a zoning change that would have forced black people to move. The protest was nonviolent, but the regime was not about to allow several hundred black people to hold such an event. While there was not much that a factory worker and an American professor have in common, that incident touched me personally. As the president of my neighborhood association, I once led 50 of my neighbors in an appearance before our zoning board. We were not being displaced, but we thought our property values would go down if a proposed change went through. <clears throat> I was the voice of reason at that meeting, 
but I have to admit that a few of the folks in the back row were somewhat intemperate in what they shouted at the commissioners. One even made a hostile ethnic comment, much to the embarrassment of the rest of us. In Johannesburg, talking to that attorney, I realized that if I were a black South African, peaceful or not, I would have been arrested for organizing my neighborhood protest. Never mind that back home, the chair of the zoning board thanked us for our good citizenship or that the board ruled in our favor. After all, my neighbors and I were white. Under the ethnic regime that governed South Africa at the time, protests by black people were not permissible, and their leader had been arrested and given a long sentence. Since it is governments that define terrorism, he was a terrorist by definition, which under the laws of the apartheid state included those who promoted feelings of hostility, quote-unquote, between any races, or caused substantial financial loss to the state, quote-unquote. In the quirky logic of that day, promoting feelings of hostility included pointing out that government policy was racist. To the South African security forces, those pr protesters might as well have been throwing bombs. It all came down to the same thing. As I spoke to that attorney, I was no more than a white professor on sabbatical who happened to head his neighborhood association. But psychologically and legally, I was well on the road to what South African law saw as terrorism. When I got back home, I linked up with an organization called the International Defense and Aid Fund, IDAF. It was a London-based group of white liberals and black activists with three primary goals. To provide legal advice to those caught up in the apartheid-era security apparatus, to provide assistance for the families of those in exile or in prison, and to provide accurate information on the South African situation. My role, as I saw it, was that third goal, to promote accurate information. What I did not realize until a decade later was that the IDAF's mother organization, the Defense and Aid Fund, had been banned under South Africa's terrorism laws. The overseas affiliate had survived, and now I was not only a member, but also on the Detroit area governing board. I'm not sure if being on that board made me a terrorist kingpin, but by definition it made me a member of a terrorist support organization. In South Africa, I would have been arrested and labeled as such in the announcement of my detention. Words are more than words when the security forces of a state are involved. Over the next decade, my role in the South African struggle was marginal at best. As someone with a strong aversion to violence and an equally strong commitment to negotiated settlements of ethnic wars, I saw my role as an outgrowth of my professional training. I taught a class on South African politics, delivered public talks, was interviewed from time to time by the media, and once spoke to the regents in favor of divestment. At the time, they were opposed. But later, under pressure from the state legislature, they changed their minds and did some limited sales of stocks. When people asked why I was doing these things, I had a quick answer. I was doing what a good citizen should do. I was speaking up for social justice, for non-racial government, for majority rule, and for the integrity of my university, which I felt was entangling itself in a system whose policies were antithetical to its values. Our most outspoken regent challenged me on this, saying that our investments were moderating the system from within and were preventing the rise of a communist government. I held my tongue when he said these bizarre words.
I remember, too, a meeting with a prominent Christian leader in Johannesburg, whom I expected to greet me as an ally. He told me that the Americans were propping up the South African regime, that even being in South Africa on my sabbatical was an embrace of the system, and that being affiliated with a major university made me a part of the problem. It was a very disturbing conversation, one that shattered some illusions. By the way, he was black. But back to the goals of the IDAF. Let's be honest, we knew what we wanted. We wanted Nelson Mandela released from prison, a free majority rule election in South Africa, and the replacement of that ethnic regime with a new political system. The white Afrikaner government of South Africa was correct to view us as people who wanted to sweep them from the pages of history. We believed, perhaps naively, that there would be no end to violence in that land and no peace for either whites or blacks until there was a change in regime. Most white Afrikaners believed equally firmly that if there were majority rule, their time in their homeland would be limited. They shuddered at the thought that someday their state, their shield from barbarism and murder, might be weakened or even gone. They also believed that divestment would cause substantial financial loss to the state, there's that phrase again, again quoting from the anti-terrorism law. Their most charitable interpretation of people like us was that we were dangerously ill-informed fellow travelers who functioned as apologists for extremist groups that clearly concealed their true motives. After all, no one could deny that the African National Congress guerrillas had engaged in acts of violence against innocent civilians, white and black, I might, have, I might note. If terrorism is an action that strikes fear in the heart of a population, that's a standard part of U.S. government definitions, then I was a terrorist, in effect, if not intent. And the IDF was part of an international terrorist infrastructure. Today, almost everyone agrees, at least in public, on what the IDAF supported. But in those days, when the American government and other powerful groups were playing footsie with the South African regime, it was not quite so obvious that everyone was secretly behind Nelson Mandela, and it was not quite so easy to take the position we took. We knew that elements of the media, and at least one of our regents, were linked to that regime in various ways, and we knew that some of us were being monitored. The details of this, names and organization, including the owner of a Michigan newspaper chain, were later made public during Pretoria's so-called Muldergate scandal. As a young, just-tenured professor, I was very grateful for the words of my chancellor, who told me that I was free to take whatever position I wanted on these issues, even if he did not agree, and that he would support my right to speak. To me, the cases of South Africa and Israel are quite different. And I suspect that then-President Summers was right that among those who support divestiture, there are some individuals who view, whose views are profoundly anti-Israeli. How could they not be? But if someone in a crowd shouts a racial epithet, there is no reason to discredit the whole crowd or to respond in kind with a different epithet. When I encountered the promiscuous and inflammatory use of words like terrorist and anti-Semite, especially when targeted at those who oppose Israeli policy, I have a disturbing sense of deja vu. And I remembered my days as a terrorist, by definition. Thank you for listening.